0: There's this uh, wild story in the Book of Genesis, which, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is the first book in the Bible, where this guy named Abraham is getting through a hot summer in the dog days, and he's chilling under a tree. And if you've ever seen any Bible movies, he probably had a massive robe on and a massive beard, and he's just sweating and he's really hot. So it's like bland, boring hot summer day, and then God just shows up and appears, and it's this super mysterious. Story Because he he shows up in the form of these three men. And however you interpret it, it's really clear that God, that Abraham knows God is actually in his midst. Okay? So put yourself in that situation. Uh, It's a dog day in the summer and you are just hot and sweating. And then all of a sudden you're in the presence of God. He's there. What would your first reaction or inclination be? You don't have to answer it, but think about it. Uh, I find Abraham's reaction fascinating. He essentially hops up, bows down, and then says, Ah, oh my gosh, do you guys want some food? Let me see if I can go find what's in the fridge, and I'll, you know, cook something up really quick. I'll fire on the grill. So he runs into his house, and he says, Sarah, honey, God's in our midst, basically. Like, what do we have to, to offer? And then they prepare something, they get everything, and then they share a meal. They sit under the tree, and they eat That was Abraham's first inclination. And what I find fascinating is that if you look through the Bible, and actually all cultures in all places throughout history, you find that this gut instinct to eat in a sacred or holy place, to share a meal with God, is not abnormal at all. So uh, when God is bringing his people out of Egypt, he commands them to eat in the Middle of of the exodus on the last day when they're coming out of egypt he says sit down and eat a meal uh if you're familiar with in the later on in the book of exodus on mount sinai in the middle of this apocalyptic scene of like smoke and fire and everything else god says moses bring all the elders of the nation up on the mountain and we're going to eat they have a meal and the temple in the center of jerusalem was like the central kitchen of the city so food was constantly being cooked and prepared there. It would have smelled like a barbecue. It would have looked and smelled like the Festival of Meats, which we celebrated this past week. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that sounds weird. But it was a, uh, it was a men's evening we had where we grilled a bunch of meat. That's what the temple would have felt like. So two weeks ago, we talked about how God pro- provides a place for his people where he meets with them, a particular place And for us, that is the church. Last week, we talked about how where God dwells, he speaks. And so this particular place is the dwelling place of God's word. It's where we hear him speak. And this week, we're going to talk about this idea that as the church, the house of God, this is the place of God's feast. It's the particular place where God's table is. Because we, like Abraham, like in the temple, have come here to eat, right? At the middle of our worship, there's a table. What in the world does that mean? When Jesus said what Charlie just read, everyone left. (laughs) If you keep on reading in John 6, everybody's like, this is too weird. I'm out. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. In the early days of the Christians, Romans were like, you guys are super weird. And they understood pagan sacrifices and stuff. But the fact that they were somehow eating and drinking the body and blood of their Savior It was just too much. It was too hard to understand. What in the world? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, If you are a Christian, I pray that there are levels in your understanding of worship and what you think about church that will be deepened. If you're here and you're visiting and you're just interested in Christian things, I hope that this idea, like, why do we all get together on a Sunday morning and all share a meal together? I hope it makes sense and it draws you to the beauty of Jesus. who draws us to his table. Sound good? Okay, there is, uh, I was reading something this week, and I love this, these two words, inexhaustible richness. Isn't that just good? I just want to say that over and over again. Inexhaustible richness. There is inexhaustible richness to the table. But, so we're not going to talk about everything, but I want to give you three biblical pictures or images that the Bible gives us to help us understand what it means that the church is the place of God's feast. And the first one is this, and if you are a note-taker... These are dense enough to take notes. Okay? Food for the present journey. Food for the present journey. So to understand this, we have to go back to the famous story in the book of Exodus, which some of you might know, but it didn't make it into the prince of Egypt. So we'll see. Uh, So God liberates his people from Egypt. They cross the sea. Miriam gets out her tambourine and they rejoice because God liberated them from Egypt, which is amazing. But then... They learned that they had this long journey ahead of them to get to their final resting place in the promised land. And then they realized that that journey is through the wilderness where there's no food. And then they get what I call food stress. Let me explain. Okay, I have permission to share this story that I'm about to share. When Marissa and I just got back from our honeymoon, it was like our first or second night. We went to go do an errand, and then we went to go do another errand, and then we went to go do another errand, and one thing led to another, and we were driving home at like 9.30. We hadn't eaten yet, and slowly, uh, Marissa was getting quieter and quieter in the car throughout the evening until it was like 9.45, and we're driving back, and finally she just snapped. She was like, I don't know, you you know, we can't eat dinner at 10 o'clock every night. You can do this, but I can't. You know, things are going to have to change. (laughs) She's thinking like in our entire, like for the rest of my life, there's not gonna be a consistent schedule for meals. All right, she got food stress and you guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you get coffee stress because I absorb it sometimes. You're like, wait, there's not coffee here. What am I gonna do? What am I getting at the next piece of coffee? You get it? Food stress, everybody gets it. You start thinking, well, if I'm doing this, then I'm not gonna be able to get my meal. And on a corporate level, the entire nation of Israel feels that at the same time. They're like, what? We're about to journey through the wilderness. How are we going to eat? And that story with Marissa is funny. But when it goes from like newlywed logistics to an entire people or a group of people wondering when their next meal is going to be, it's a very serious thing. So. They all feel that and they crack and they turn to Moses and they say, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? At least we had food there. They snap And Psalm 78. I love this kind of boils down their central question to this lovely phrase. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? That was their question. Is it possible for God to provide for us? in the middle of non-existence, basically, which they thought the wilderness was. But the Bible says that God knew what he was doing. He specifically brought them to that point of food stress to ask that question so that they could learn the answer to the question, can God spread the table in the wilderness? And when there was no possible way for it to happen, God provided for his people. Some of you might know the story, but the Israelites woke up after they had cracked and had food stress. And the brown, the brown, the ground was covered in bread. Manna, which is the, the word that the Bible calls it. In the midst of an impossibility, God provided for them. And I love this thing it says. It says it was never too much or too little. So nothing was ever left over, but they never had any lack. So God put them in, in this position where they were never hungry. But they always had to depend and trust on God for the next day of provision. Isn't that cool? Okay, over a thousand years later, Jesus is standing on this grassy hill. And crowds are flocking to him because Jesus is amazing. So people wanted to be with him and they wanted to meet him, which people still do today. And he's teaching and he's healing and he's having compassion on all these people. And it's getting later and later in the day. And the disciples are getting quieter and quieter because there's nowhere to eat and each of the gospel stories tells us a little bit different that people start freaking out they start experiencing food stress and i love it uh some of the gospels say jesus asks them in order to just poke them when he can already tell that they're they're struggling he says hey why don't you guys give them something to eat and at that they snap they go what We don't have that. There's thousands of people here. We don't have that kind of food. We don't even have the money to buy that kind of food. If we did have the money, where would we buy it? And they just start unraveling. And when there was no possible, realistic way for the people to eat, Jesus finds this kid who's got a couple loaves and a couple fish. He brings it together. He blesses it. He breaks it. And everybody eats. Miraculously, at the end of John six says that all the people had their fill. So food stress is a real thing, and like I said, it can be funny, um, like coffee or me and Marissa, but it can be a super serious thing uh, for communities that do live in poverty and do question when their next meal is. If you take any way thing away from this, at first you can tell that God cares about providing for people. Jesus actually fed the 5,000. God actually fed the Israelites. God cares, the church cares. And right alongside that, God also sees into a deeper hunger than the body, which is what Jesus is talking about in John 6. A deeper food stress almost, if you could call it. So Mother Teresa um, lived in the house of the destitute and dying in Calcutta for a long time. She was like running it. And if anybody had an idea of what it was like to live in a place where people were questioning their next meal, Mother Teresa would have. She literally committed her life to the the least of these. But she has this fascinating quote, which you may have heard because it's really famous. She says, at the end of everything that she had done with destitute and dying in India, she says that there's more hunger for love and appreciation in this world than for bread, which is really interesting. It doesn't mean that people don't need bread because Mother Teresa gave them bread but she saw that that needed something else as well. And Jesus looks into this crowd and sees the same thing. Mother Teresa is getting that from Jesus. Jesus isn't getting it from Mother Teresa. Let's just be clear. Um, We all ask in our own ways, right? Whether you would call yourself a Christian or not. Am I going to be provided for? Does God see my present overwhelming need? It could be financial, could be relational, could be mental, But each of us ask, whether we consciously ask it or not, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Amen? And God wants you to ask it because he wants you to know the answer to that question. He wants you to have a confident answer to the question, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Um, Everything we just talked about, Exodus, manna, feeding of the 5,000, all of those are in the Bible as images to help us understand what Jesus did for us. So the Bible says uh, that Jesus had come for an exodus. It actually uses that word in Luke 9. He's, he'd come for his own exodus. But not to lead us out of slavery from Egypt, from, but from our slavery to sin. And when Jesus looked out at the crowds, like we said, he didn't just see a physical hunger, he saw people starving for forgiveness, for love, for hope, and to provide for that hunger. He did not just gather in some fish and loaves. His body he gave. It was blessed. His body was broken. And he gave himself for the life of the world, like he says in John 6. Look at John 6 with me. Got to ask it. What page is it on? For the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is saying, God could provide you another meal, another job, a spouse, a child, whatever it is that you hunger for that you ask, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And it's kind of shocking, but he's saying it to these people to get them to understand. It. He's saying, You could get those things, but you would still die. Jesus is saying, He's the living bread. True food for true hunger. Deep bread for deep food stress. And those who eat it never die. So before Jesus died, before his body was broken for the life of the world, he taught his disciples to eat this meal, the Lord's Supper, where we tangibly, think about this, we tangibly get to experience what the Israelites did in the wilderness and what the 5,000 did on the hillside. Tangibly. Tangibly. Every Sunday, this is God meeting our hunger, meeting our food stress every single week, whatever it is, our doubts about His provision. And we believe that at this meal, Jesus actually nourishes you. He actually does. You partake of Jesus Christ. In our liturgy, it says that we thank God at the end that He fed us with spiritual food, right? So Christians have been doing it ever since, using the same words that he taught his disciples. And every time we celebrate this meal, you'll notice that another priest or me will break or fracture the bread. You guys know what I'm talking about? It comes at the end. You'll see me do it later on today. And this is the moment that signifies that we only participate in this meal. We only get to be fed because Jesus' body was broken. It's this beautiful moment. It's blessed and then it's broken. Our deepest hungers are met and we receive that life because Jesus starved and was killed. So every week we get to come and we get to see it and experience it. We get to experience that same thing the Israelites did and the folks did as they were fed. So life is hard, right? Uh, The Israelites came out of bondage and they had a long journey and it was rough. And we are liberated in the gospel. We're set free, but then we had a long journey. Life is hard. Whether you're a Christian here or not, life is hard. Can I get an amen? You need nourishment. You need daily bread. We need daily bread for the journey, and the church is the place where we all gather together. And in my mind's eye, I've had this image all week of a bread line of the Great Depression. We humble forward. We're there with all of our food stress, with all of our doubts, With all of our messed upness, and we come and we cup our hands, and God feeds us. He spreads a table in the midst of whatever wilderness we're in. And when you do that, if you come to the table today, you should be thinking, God sees me. He knows me. He provides for me. He died so that he could provide for me. It's so intimate. It's so... uh, I just love the picture of what God does for us every week. You get to answer the question, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Brothers and sisters, yes, he can. He has and he will. Amen? Amen? Bread for the journey. Second image is this. It's a celebration of past victory. So it's bread for the present journey and it's a celebration of past victory. Very rarely do we commemorate anything as humans without food. Um, so birthdays, we have birthday cakes, right? We had our harvest celebration and it was beautiful and it was cold and it was amazing. And we had harvesty foods, whatever that is. Pumpkins is a part of that for sure. Um, we do that for small things. We do that for big things. One of my favorite pictures of a big thing comes from Lord of the Rings, which I try to not always talk about Lord of the Rings, but I just love this. Uh, after the great battle of Helm's Deep. There's this feast that everyone who survived comes back to the great hall in Rohan to have a feast. To not only commemorate those who fell in the battle, but also to celebrate the victory. And King Feoden makes this toast, which all my Lord of Rings geeks, what does he toast? Oh, man. Okay. Hail the victorious dead, is what he says really loud. This hall is filled with throngs of people. And he holds up a cup and says, hail the victorious dead. And all the men and women roar back to him, hail. And then they feast and they eat. God told the people of Israel when they were leaving to celebrate the feast of Passover. But then he also told them to celebrate that feast every single year afterwards so that they could commemorate it and celebrate what God did in the exodus. And of course, that, if you think about it, all the way down throughout history has this way of sweeping up generations and gathering people into the drama of God and what he did. So even if you weren't alive then, you still get to be a part of it and experience it. And before he died, Jesus taught his disciples to celebrate this meal on the night of Passover. And Jesus did that intentionally because he knew He was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, the true Passover lamb. So he taught his disciples to celebrate it as a type of Passover. So while we come to this table with our present need, and it's this deeply humble, frail, precious moment, we at the same time have our eyes flung backwards to remember this massive, amazing, sure victory. While God's provision for bread for the journey is such this personal, intimate thing, this bit of it is this loud, confident thing. We rejoice in the victory of Jesus, who defeated death. He trampled Satan and hell under his feet and rose victorious, evil, lost, and good-worn. That's worth celebrating, right? Um, Our reading today from Isaiah, which Matthew read, I think it both foreshadows this meal, but also the victory of Jesus. And when I read this passage, go to it with me. What, What page is it on? Six. When I read this passage, I hear a massive, like, army of timpani drums just rolling in the background. You should hear fanfare and confetti and this guy just almost coming to the voice of a shout when he's reading through this passage, okay? I won't shout at you, but I wish I could. Maybe I will. Let me read this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Amen. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Now here's where the writers of Rohan scream back at the prophet Isaiah. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So when you come to this table, there is absolutely this precious, intimate nature to it. But do not think this is some sad, solemn, like boring thing. Okay. You should be feeling all the energy and the swelled chest pride that Jesus defeated death. It's done. It's finished. And in fact, there's a few moments in our liturgy where you actually do, and all of us get to participate and scream something back and roar back. So after we hear what Jesus has done and what he's taught his disciples about his body and blood, you'll hear the priest say, Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith, and you roar back. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. You should be looking forward to that today. We're saying, this happened. Death lost. Evil lost. My own sin has been taken away. My tears have been wiped away. And then right after the priest breaks the bread... You'll hear him say, Hallelujah. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And then we all roar back, therefore, let us keep the feast. So the first biblical picture is like the bread line. God meets you, he sees you in your deepest, most felt need. And the second is confidence it's loud, it's fanfare, it's regal, it's victorious. But there's one last picture, and that's this. It's a feast of future hope. So it's bread for the present journey. It's a celebration of a past victory. And it's a feast for a future hope. So see, we got a present, past, future thing going on here. This meal meets us in the present. It casts our eyes to the past, but then it draws our hearts to assure and future hope. Um, when Jesus was sharing this meal with his disciples... Right after he was teaching him how to celebrate it and how to eat it, he says something really interesting in Matthew. This is Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So essentially, Jesus is saying, This meal is for you on your journey until I return. Right? Bread for the wilderness. And we aren't going to share it again until I come back and all things are made new and we come together for a whole new kind of meal. The manna that the Israelites lived off of was only to get them to the promised land. And it's really fascinating. When they get there, it stops. As soon as they get to the promised land, they wake up the next morning and it's not there anymore. Because they didn't need it. They were there. Likewise, Jesus gives us himself in this meal that we celebrate to sustain us and remind us of what he's done until the day when he comes back and all things are consummated and the bride is there to meet the groom at the marriage supper. Even in the end of things, we're still eating food. Isn't that amazing? God created us to love and eat food. We've eaten a lot of food as Christ Church in the past like three weeks. It's very deeply biblical and theological. Uh, This is what uh, was in Revelation that Sarah read. The voices cry out that God reigns, the marriage has come. Let the bride make herself ready. Blessed are they who are invited to the marriage feast. When Rissa and I were engaged, uh, we went to eat at the place we were going to have our wedding to like try out their food. Some of you who are married might have done this before. So it was this nice place, and we got to sit down and like, be in the place where it was going to be and eat the food. And it was awesome because the food was delicious, but at the same time, we were like, oh, this is going to be so great. This steak's amazing, and everybody's going to be here. All the people who aren't here now are going to come. We're going to get married. It's going to be a wedding. This is going to be awesome. In a similar way, don't follow the analogy perfectly. That is kind of what we do when we share the Lord's table. We are tasting something that is going to be more fully, more amazingly experienced at the end of all things when Jesus is with us. So even in the scriptures, it says, as often as you do this meal, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes, So we should be thinking, when we experience this, oh man, this is going to be so good. Everybody's going to be here throughout all time and space. We're all going to be together, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to eat. You get a foretaste of that every single week. It would be like if Marissa and I ate at that place every single week while we were engaged, up until the time we actually had our wedding, and everybody was there. So why do we share this meal? What in the world... Does it mean that every time we meet, we eat together, there's inexhaustible richness? Again, take that praise with you. Use it in a random place this week. People will be like, wow, nice, nice praise." Uh, What does it mean? It's bread for the present journey. It's a celebration of past victory, and it's a feast of future hope. You come in all of your human smallness. Please feel, I hope. I pray this morning that you know that you can bring all of yourself to God's table as you are in all of its imperfection. Do you know that? God sees everything you need. He knows it. He wants to provide. So you get in the bread line and you come to receive Jesus who died so that you could be filled. And then your eyes are like lifted up and thrown backwards to this immense victory that you should be feeling like a writer of Rohan. And then your heart is lifted up and cast to the future of what's about to happen. Isn't that awesome? I was talking to Marissa this week about this dynamic of how can all those things exist together at the same time? Like, who else would mix that many metaphors? In God's wisdom, it works. And what Marissa was saying I thought was amazing, which is God, in a way, applies the past and the future to your present need. So you come with all your smallness, and then God kind of sandwiches you in between something that has been done and something that will happen. And he applies it to whatever you as a human being are feeling at that minute. It's such an amazing thing. And all of this ties into our our current series because the church is where that meal is served. All meals are not the Lord's Supper, are not communion. Jesus entrusted this meal to his bride, to the church, and this is where it's served. So we come here to the particular place where the food is on the table. It's like, I know when I'm around my mom's house, I want to be in her kitchen. This is good. This is where the meal is served. And therefore, we should always look forward to it. We we shouldn't want to miss a meal. Um, One of the most influential people in my life is a guy who discipled me in high school and college. And he, uh, yeah, just massive influence on the person who I am today goes back to this guy. And a couple of years ago, he fell headlong into a really awful season of alcoholism, which ultimately led to his divorce and the shattering of his life. And I was talking to him this week, and he was telling me as he's felt in the middle of all this, when literally the world was slipping through his fingers and everything was shattering around him, it was the Eucharist which anchored him and gave him hope. He said he had no idea how to even think about hope for his life in the future through what was happening. He's since gone through an amazing rehab and transformation, by the way. But when there was no hope, he said, I would come forward and I would receive and I would be reminded that I'm part of the covenant community of God and that there was hope for me. He got sandwiched in between a past and present that was applied to his absolute need and God provided for him. He felt like he could be anchored and he was welcome in spite of everything at God's table. My prayer is that when you think of this, even if it's in Edgewood High, when you think of Christ Church Madison or if you're here and you're a part of another church, there are other awesome churches. We're not the only place that serves this meal. The church serves this meal and the church is everywhere. But my prayer is you would think this highly, And this profoundly, and you would look to it, you would look forward to it as much as that. That you would roll out of bed on a Sunday morning and be like, I need to eat. I want to be reminded. I want to walk in to the past, present, and future of God's actions in history.